Good morning. How far down your hierarchy does Jesus fall? Some of you, if you took uh, debate or logic, uh, would recognize that as a loaded question, right? It's assuming something negative um, in the question, and there's no way to answer it without agreeing to, to that, that thing. Um, how, far down does, uh, how far down your hierarchy does Jesus fall? For the saints at Colossae, this was not a loaded question. It was a very relevant question. Uh, definitely not a rhetorical question. It was one that was very uh, <clears throat> important and, and one that was preying on Paul's mind as he was not present with them to refute false teaching that was coming in and, and poisoning the minds of these young believers who had not yet been established in the, the truth fully. And so he, uh, Paul wrote the letter of the Colossians uh, to these young believers to help um, refute and prevent this false doctrine from gaining a foothold in their midst. So we can turn to the book of Colossians. <clears throat> if you only had one Bible passage to give to a young church, one that had been established, but then maybe the, the uh, person who had came there and, and planted it had to leave, um, if you only had one passage to, to help them preserve them and prevent uh, bad doctrine, what would, what would that passage be? Well, for Paul, uh, at least in the case of the Corinthians, this was it. But as mature uh, Christians, if you could only take one passage to, to meditate on the person of Christ, if you were stranded on a desert island and only had, had one passage you could use, hopefully we have many up here, right? But if, if it were limited to only one, what would it be? Well, uh, for me, this would be a, a good choice as well. Um, we can infer that the false teaching that was creeping into Colossae was a mix of Jewish ceremonial laws, so Jewish believers, perhaps well-intentioned, also with, with pride and other things in their lives, saying, well, yes, it's okay that the Gentiles uh, can, can kind of tag on to our Messiah here, but they need to be doing some of the things that, that we've done because we have the law, we have these other things. Um, <clears throat> so legalism on one hand, and then completely unrestrained living on another hand. Um, licentiousness, just, just being able to leave, live however you like. And part of the reason for that was that <clears throat> um, Gnosticism, or at least an early form of Gnosticism, was being taught as well. Gnosticism as a false teaching isn't really around today, um, but uh, at that time it was very mysterious and, and uh, seemed like secret knowledge, extra knowledge that was needed, and that's how it was, was presented, that to, under, to, to be really inducted as an acolyte into the, the mysteries of Christ and the, the, the full knowledge of Christianity. These Gnostics would come along and say, well, let us, let us show you our charts of all these, um, <clears throat> all these angels and, and spiritual powers, invisible powers that we've deduced and things like that. And I'll get into a little bit more of um, what that involved. Let's read uh, chapter 1, verse 13 to 22 of Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in, uh, sorry, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. These Gnostics uh, believed a few things that we would actually agree with. One is that God is perfect and untouchably, undescribably um, other than us, just completely um, perfect in, in, in every way. And of course, we would agree with that. They also believed that the material universe we lived in, this at the atomic level, was corrupt and evil. And we would also agree with that, would we not? The problem came when they would then explain how a perfect and completely holy God could have created a corrupt and evil material universe. Their solution was that God, or whatever their notion of God was, created something or, or something emanated from him, came out of him. And then something came from that, or that created something else. And so there was this big chain of spiritual creations. And at the very bottom of this chain was our physical universe, separated by layers and layers and layers of, of hierarchy and authority between that perfect God and this corrupt universe. And they had deduced this because they accepted those two primary uh, truths that we would also accept. Um, so this was kind of like photocopying copies of a copy on a, on a uh, Xerox machine. You start with a master, but as if you start copying those copies, eventually it gets so blurred you can't read it. And that's the, what they said happened with our universe. And then as a result of that, they said, well, our physical bodies don't matter. Um, whatever we do with them, as far as, as uh, our behavior doesn't matter at all, it's what's inside, our spiritual essence that, that matters and uh, different things like that. So Paul here is, is here to set the record straight. He starts in verse 13 saying, He, Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Here the emphasis when speaking of domain and uh, kingdom, uh, it's the, the point is the authority. So yes, Israel was physically taken, taken beyond the geographic borders of Egypt. But the point was they were taken out from under slavery, out from under the authority of, of um, Pharaoh, and then taken into a land of promise, not the borders of Canaan. Uh, ge geography is not the point here. Same, same here, um, that we are taken out of the domain, out of the authority 
of darkness and then transferred under the authority of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's interesting that normally we talk about Christ rescuing us and uh, bringing us to God, right? Putting us in God the Father's kingdom. And the point here, Paul seems to kind of reverse that from the way we normally think about it. Um, his point may be that God the Father is rescuing us through Christ, through Christ's work on the cross, and placing us under Christ's authority. <clears throat> we Americans um, emphasize personal freedom. Our liberties we prize, our rights we will defend, or, or however that goes. Um, <clears throat> and we're very individualistic society. Having lived in China, I've seen what a collectivistic society looks like. And then by comparison, Americans <clears throat> are willing to sacrifice a lot of other things so that they can have their individual freedom, so that they can do things their way, they can express themselves in the way they, they want. Whereas in a collectivist society, um, people generally are willing to sacrifice much of what they would like to see happen so that the collective can benefit, so that um, the better of the, the, the greater good is upheld, even at personal cost. But Americans, <clears throat> individuality. I want to show, you know, I want to dress the way I want, I want to drive the way I want, I do, want everyth do everything the way I want. And so when we read passages about being set free from sin, we think, yes, liberty, freedom. That's what we love. And we forget that we are not free. We are under Christ's authority. Everything must be run by him. We have a new master, just not no master or our, or, or our, our own master. And so Christ, uh, Paul emphasizes that as well. Christ himself said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but there is a yoke. You are pulling. You are uh, serving. And there is a burden, and it must be borne every day. And uh, so let us not forget that in our pursuit of life, liberty, and, and happiness. Um, <clears throat> verse 14, he talks about Jesus Christ being the one in whom we have redemption. Redemption means being bought back. That a sum, and what a sum, what a, what a price, was paid to buy us back, to buy us out of this kingdom of darkness. When we go to Target, we pick something off the shelves, we take it to the cashier, they swipe it, beep, and we pay money, and then we take it back home. Used to belong to Target, now it belongs to us. It's not as though it's just free in the world now. It was transferred from one sphere of authority to our sphere of authority, and we, since we own it now, do with it as we please. The same is true of us in Christ. We have been bought back, brought back and at a great price, so we should never think that we have just uh, been set free or that we're... we're uh, our own masters now. <clears throat> Along with that, though, came the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, and the Gnostics would have recognized that. But everybody could see Jesus. They could touch him. They could see him uh, bless babies. They could see him interact with Zacchaeus and a woman caught in adultery and all these all these instances, they knew exactly how God would react. They had a perfect representation of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, most of them didn't know that's what they were looking at. Um, but we have it recorded for us in Scripture so that 2,000 years later we, 
we know exactly what God is, is like. <clears throat> John, of course, emphasizes this very much in his gospel. God was made flesh and we beheld him. <clears throat> the Gnostics taught that um, Jesus was a man and that the Christ was an emanation, so something that proceeded out of God and came to rest in the man Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan. Okay, so up until that point, he had just been an ordinary man. And then, according to the Gnostics, at that point, something emanated, something proceeded forth from God and dwelt in um, Jesus Christ. And then, since that emanation was too perfect, it left him at the Garden of Gethsemane. And just the man Jesus died on the cross. And I hope you can see a lot of problems with that way of thinking. But again, this was where their way of addressing holy, perfect, untouchable God, corrupt, evil, material universe, including our bodies, including everything we see and touch around ourselves. And to a young believer, someone who had not been established in the truth, who didn't have the New Testament to, to fall back on, this would have made some sense. This would have been attractive. This would have been answers to, to some difficult questions, no doubt. Paul here says, no, he is the image, the, the full representation of the invisible God. Um, he said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, seen an invisible God, but seen it in, in my person. Um, we know that Adam was created in God's image, as were all men. And Adam messed it up, didn't he? He did not represent perfectly the image of God, though he was created to bear that image. And so there was the necessity of a second Adam, a second image bearer, a second representation of God. And this time he did it absolutely perfectly. He pleased the Father in every way, um, <clears throat> fully representing God. And interestingly, Paul also, else, uh, later in the book, speaks of us being conformed to Christ's image, to the image of God himself. He bore that image. We know what it looks like. We have the gospel records. And that is what we are being conformed into, God's image as believers. Um, in in uh, chapter 3 Paul, of Colossians, Paul says, being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, created us, in other words. Um, so we are being renewed, we are being transformed elsewhere, Paul says. <clears throat> in verse 15 also, he talks about Christ being the firstborn of all creation. If we're not careful here, um, it might sound like he's talking about God being a created thing or something that came, you know, maybe first and then the other things were created as well. And so let's, let's look at this, um, this word firstborn. In English, it's pretty straightforward. Firstborn means you were born first. And in our culture, it doesn't particularly have any special meaning to it. <clears throat> in their culture, you may know that the firstborn actually came with certain responsibilities and certain privileges. You got a double birthright, but then Culturally, you were expected to take care of your parents in your old age, be responsible for that household moving on to the next generation. That was your responsibility as a firstborn, especially a male firstborn. Um, so 
with, in, in their thinking, the term firstborn comes with a certain rank, certain privilege, certain responsibility, certain duties that, that we don't really have in our Western culture today, at least. Um, interestingly, in the Bible, God uses this in such a way that you don't have to be first and you don't even have to be born to be a firstborn. Um, in the Psalms, David, God says, I will make David my firstborn. How many older brothers did David have? He had seven older brothers. He was the youngest, right? And Samuel saw all of them and, and God said, nope, none of them. They're not going to be the anointed one of Israel. David, the youngest, is going to become the firstborn. He's going to have that rank. He's going to be the most glorious king that, that um, Israel has ever seen or ever will see until the Messiah comes. Um, likewise, who was born first, Isaac or Ishmael? Ishmael was physically born first, was he not? God says, no, that's not the firstborn. The son of promise, the one that comes through my work of, of bringing life through two people who, who were dead by human accounts. Isaac is, is my firstborn. Isaac is through whom the line of promise will continue. <clears throat> the nation of Israel. Israel is my son, my firstborn, says Exodus 4. Israel was not born. Israel is not a person. It's thousands and, and uh, millions of, of, of people. It was not born, and yet it is called a firstborn again. Israel had a position and responsibilities and a rank among all the other nations to represent God again. And um, so when God says it's my firstborn, he's not talking about being first or being born. He's talking about their privilege, their rank um, as a nation, that he has chosen them of all the others as a special um, selection. In the same sense, Christ was not first, in other words, he wasn't the first thing created out of many things created. Um, he was not born, even though he was uh, born of, of Mary. Um, he did not have a beginning. He was not created. And so when Paul here uses this term firstborn, he's speaking of that. Um, some translations render it firstborn over all creation, which even would also emphasize his position, his rank, over all, of, all things that were created. So Christ could not have been created first and then creation. He created all of, all of creation, um, is, is Paul's point here. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. <clears throat> Wasn't a series of creations or emanations that separated God from man, the hierarchy was very flat. There's God and there's everything he created. Doesn't matter how powerful it is, Paul alludes here and elsewhere to there being spiritual powers. There is a hierarchy of, of authorities and dominions. Here I don't believe he's talking about Caesar and Nero, um, earthly rulers. He's talking about spiritual beings that we just have hints of at, um, in the Bible. You can read uh, Frank Peretti's Piercing the Darkness, uh, This Present Darkness, those books. He fictionalizes these things and, and uh, you know, people have, have guessed at these. The Gnostics themselves guessed at, at this hierarchy. They gave them all names. They have, have these big charts that you can find on the internet if you look. Um, 
but Paul is saying, no, it's very flat. God, everything else under him, created by him. Doesn't matter how powerful you think that it is, how holy, how, how lofty, it was all created by Jesus Christ. It exists uh, by him and uh, through him and for him. When Paul says it was created by him, I believe he's saying that Jesus Christ is the, the means of creation, the agent of creation. He is the one who did the creating. Um, when he says that all things were created through Christ, that maybe speak to, speaks to him being the conduit, the pipeline through which the power of God flows. We also read that the Holy Spirit created, uh, was involved in creation and that God the Father created things. So again, the Trinity, the Triunity, uh, all mixed together there. Um, and nevertheless, that God's power was flowing through him when he created and then created for him. That Jesus Christ is the reason that things were created. Just as grandma buys a gift for her grandson on Christmas and that gift is for him, in a similar way we can think of all of creation being for Jesus Christ. Not for God the Father necessarily, not for the Holy Spirit in this case, for Jesus Christ himself. For all of this, all of this was created for him. He is the recipient, we could even think perhaps. Uh, and he's certainly the owner, is he not? A sculptor makes a sculpture. We would say that gives him right. That is his sculpture because he created it. Similarly, when you create a universe, it's yours. You get to say what happens to it. You have ownership. Let's make this a little more personal. You and I were created for Jesus Christ. That means we belong to him completely. Again, let's not slip into our American way of, of thinking, well, I've been set free, and so I can do whatever I, I want, and I'm really grateful to, to Jesus for, for uh, freeing me. Um, that's not the point. Paul here is saying that whether we recog recognize it or not, each person, each individual, atheist or believer or Jew or Gentile, um, were created for Jesus Christ. On one hand, that means you have absolutely no worth in yourself. There's nothing intrinsic about you that has any value, that has any meaning because you were created specifically and only for Jesus Christ. Of yourself, you are worthless. On the other hand, think about it. The holy, untouchable, perfect God of the universe created you for himself. That means you are of immeasurable worth to him. I don't even understand it. Why, why do, God needs nothing. He is completely self-sustaining, completely independent. It's not like he was up in, in heaven thinking, oh, I'm so lonely, I need to create humans so that I can have somebody to talk to. God does not need any of that, and yet he chose to create us. And for some reason, he did, and that means that I am extremely valuable to him because he says so. So, kind of paradoxically, it means we are both worthless and that we have infinite worth to him, or at least ex extreme, immeasurable worth to him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Um, perhaps Paul here is addressing the idea that the Christ was an emanation that only came at the baptism by John uh, in the Jordan. In John 1.1, 1, 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before anything existed, God existed. Jesus Christ existed. It was not an emanation that came later. It was not something separate from the uh, man Jesus. He was before all things, and here he even says his, his grammar is bad. Uh, in English, he is before all things. But when we start talking about God, we introduce paradoxes that our human brains who must live in time and space can't quite comprehend. He is before all things, not was, he is. Um, in him, all things hold together. Oh, sorry, uh, well, uh, Christ, of course, even alluded to this in John when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Not was, I was before Abraham. Uh, he says, I am before Abraham. Uh, he is before all things. Same, same odd grammar there. The only way that Paul and even Christ himself in our language was able to express it, it seems. All things hold together in Jesus Christ. Um, they consist, they endure, they continue on in him. Even these spiritual beings, which the Bible presents as being higher than us. When Christ was incarnated, it says he was made a little lower than the angels, temporarily, and then returned to his, his rightful place of glory. They're above us. Um, even angels do not bring a rebuking remark against other angels because their power and their authority is so high. And yet... Um, even those beings exist merely because Christ wills them to continue existing. If he willed it to be so, they would not exist anymore. That is, that is how weak they are by comparison. While Christ was on earth, he walked within this physical universe that he created. He had a physical body made out of the very same things that he created, the stars and the dirt. And he controlled it from within and changed it as he willed to walk on water, to pass through walls. So all these things are controlled and consistent and continue to exist um, by his will. Moreover, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. <clears throat> Again, speaking to his authority. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Um, firstborn here, I think, may, may refer to being first in time if Paul is speaking about a new sort of resurrection, one that had not existed before. So in the Old Testament, we read about Elijah, Elisha, raising, um, raising uh, children who had, who had died, um, Christ himself raising the widow's son, um, the uh, centurion's daughter, raising Lazarus. These all died again. But then... Jesus Christ was the firstborn of a new resurrection, one where we need not die again. And he was, he was the first, again, the, the best and, and uh, greatest. Uh, again, his speaking of his, his role, his uh, title, his rank, firstborn from the dead. And all who followed after in him, resurrected in him, also uh, could share in this new resurrection. He had authority even over death. 
those who followed after need not die again. <clears throat> the end of verse 18 says that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, it's not that Paul is in doubt, and yet he uses the word might instead of is. He's talking about something future. Is Jesus Christ not preeminent? Does he not have first, first place in all? Paul says not yet. For that to be recognized at least, okay? So, so yes, in one sense, yes, he is, but we have not recognized it, right? Not all of us. Unfortunately, not all of us even here recognize that fully. We would live differently if we truly could live every moment in, in full knowledge of his, his preeminence. Um, <clears throat> he will recognize everything. Um, verse 20 and uh, 21, he's talking about things that are yet future, that everything will be reconciled in the future. And we'll get to those verses, of course. Uh, even physical creation. Uh, Romans, uh, Romans 8 talks about, uh, For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. <clears throat> Paul in, in Romans then is talking about a yet future time when even this corrupt, evil, physical universe will be redeemed and uh, will be restored to the state that it was intended to be and it will share in the glory of the sons of God, implying that we also will be restored to the state that we are intended. We are not in that state now. All things have not yet been re reconciled. He does not yet have preeminence. At least he is not yet recognized as preeminent. And so Paul is talking about a future date yet. In everything he might be preeminent. All that he's been talking about. His, um, <clears throat> his preeminence in um, the firstborn of creation as creator as being over all these uh, authorities and powers and other things, um, as, as coming before all things, being the one who upholds everything, who's the head of the church, who's even head, he's the beginning of everything, and he's the firstborn over the dead. Why is all that the case? Why is this true of Christ? Why does Paul bring up these points? Why does God teach us this is true about Christ? So that he will be preeminent. So that he will be recognized as such. So that false teaching, when it comes in, will not be able to shake these young believers into thinking that he is something less, that he is something that came after, that he is something that only dwelt for a little while and then departed. And so this morning, we need to think about this. Um, I trust I'm speaking to mature believers and yet recognizing the preeminence of God is something that is still necessary for us. It is still something we forget. And so, Paul goes on to explain a little bit more. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Gnostics likes to use this word fullness to talk about all these spiritual powers, the sum of these spiritual powers that controlled man's destiny. 
And here Paul seems to be repurposing that word fullness to talk about all of the attributes of God. Anything that is true of God was true of Jesus Christ, is true of Jesus Christ. There is no difference between them. Despite the fact that he was also born as a human in a, in a corrupt physical universe. Um, <clears throat> every God-like attribute, everything that is, is uh, true of, of God the Father is true of, Je of Jesus in their attributes, in their character, in their uh, being. <clears throat> um, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul goes on to say, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So perhaps when Paul says these things dwell in him, again, this kind of sounds like what the Gnostics were teaching, that that emanation just was on Christ, uh, on Jesus for a while and then left. But Paul talks about the fullness of God, everything true of God, dwelling in Jesus Christ, incarnated in Jesus Christ. This may be the best word that he has to describe what happened at incarnation. And, and also notice, um, here, it's active and ongoing. In chapter 2, um, he says that the fullness of, body, uh, of deity dwells in bodily form. It's active present. This is something that is still going on. The time Paul wrote this, and at this time, Christ had already returned, had already as ascended on high. That fullness is still dwelling in a human body in heaven. The incarnation was apparently permanent. And it did not leave him at death. It did not leave him at Gethsemane. He died in a physical body. He was resurrected in a physical body. That physical body is in heaven yet. And when we arrive, apparently we will recognize him as one who was sacrificed. I don't want to have any of my scars when I get to heaven, but apparently Jesus Christ, somehow at least, we will recognize him as one who was slain and then one who was, who was uh, resurrected. So this dwelling of the God, Godhead, uh, the fullness of, the, of deity, still going on in heaven. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God the Father is reconciling us to himself through Jesus the Son. Without Jesus the Son, there would be no reconciliation possible at all. The Gnostics were right in that. Holy, untouchable God, corrupt, evil creation, corrupt, evil mankind. There would be no bringing those two together. Not angels themselves could do it, unlike um, what the Gnostics taught. But there was one, Jesus Christ, the mediator, who was willing to come, who was willing to, through his death, in a physical body, physical death, physical resurrection, physical blood, redeem, reconcile, reunite. And Paul says part of the reason that he did that was so that he would be preeminent, so that everyone would recognize just who Jesus Christ was. Um, <clears throat> the, the Bible teaches here and elsewhere that, that humans need reconciled, uh, even animal creation, the universe itself, stars, all of these were touched. All of these cor were corrupted by man's disobedience. It didn't just affect Adam and Eve, did it? It fell to us. It fell to the animals. It fell to the material 
um, creation. Apparently, even heaven itself is corrupted, okay? God is not touched by that corruption, we understand. And yet, we see the sons of men passing before God in, book, in the book of Job. And they're t- he's speaking with Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Um, Hebrews says that, uh, therefore it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Even heaven itself needs cleansed, uh, probably because of the rebellion of the angels. Even that will be cleansed. Even that will be reconciled. Um, And if we want to get into all the details, I believe that the fallen angels are not reconciled, that they do not have a choice, uh, a chance at at, uh, reconciliation, at repentance, at at forgiveness, like we humans do. That should be a little humbling, uh, since they are greater than us. They don't have that. As as far as I understand, again, please please pay attention to the other things I'm saying, but if we want to get into this... um, In Philippians, he says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice here, he's talking about reconciliation of things on earth and things in heaven. He doesn't talk about under the earth. Maybe that's because that's considered the, the, uh, where hell is. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's reading too much into it. Anyway, um, all of these things will be reconciled. Um, It was necessary that Jesus Christ came physically, died physically, bled physically, and resurrected physically so that this reconciliation could happen. And it comes to us, to animals, to the material universe, and apparently the heavenly things themselves all will be reconciled to him. Um, Making peace by the blood of his cross in verse 20 and verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, or as one translation says, hostile in mind as evidenced, by your evil deeds. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He, He really hits it. Body of flesh, his death. That was what was necessary for this to happen. It could not have been just an emanation. It could not have been with a lesser Christ. It had to be the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus Christ. It comes in his body. Positionally, we are in Jesus Christ. We positionally die with him. Positionally, we are resurrected with him. Um, It has to be in his body for this reconciliation to to happen. Are you blameless this morning? Are you holy this morning? Are you without, are you above reproach? Is there nothing in your life that somebody could point? Of course there is. This has not happened yet. When we are presented as the bride, it will be without those things because we will be conformed to his image. That is yet future. It says the universe itself longs and groans for that time to be restored. Hopefully we groan a little bit too. Hopefully we're upset when we look in the mirror and see a sinner, see someone who is still reproachful. But we know that time is coming because of what Jesus did where we will have all of that completely behind us. None of that will, uh, will gall us. None of that will, will, uh, will uh, cause us pain anymore. <clears throat> Our image will be completely conformed to Jesus Christ's image. Paul wanted to make sure that this, the saints at Colossae knew 
There's nothing extra you need. There's no mysterious secret knowledge you need to be inducted into. Nothing that needs to be revealed beyond Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all that a Christian needs. That's all that we need this morning. He wanted them to know that Jesus Christ is not second any place, be it in the spirit realm, be it in the physical universe, that he is preeminent. <clears throat> he is above creation. Um, he is the head of the church. And he will be recognized as head of everything. Um, even creation itself will be reconciled back um, from the effects of sin. In our lives, does he have second place? Does he have third or tenth place? It happens, doesn't it? We get caught up. And we doubt his sovereignty when we fa face financial problems. When somebody gets sick, we find ourselves seeing him less than the sovereign God of the universe who allowed this to happen in our lives. And we start doubting. We start worrying. Instead of resting on his power, resting on his sovereignty. It happens. Um, <clears throat> Just very practically, we can look at the time that we spend on things during a week. We could literally make a, a chart if, if you wanted to. Um, how much time do I spend on my job? How much time do I spend on my car? How much time do I spend on watching Netflix or playing Xbox? And how much time do I spend on, on Christ? How much do I spend on his church edifying the, the saints? And if those are unbalanced, then we understand he is no longer preeminent. He does not stand out above all the rest. That's what preeminent means. Eminent, we talk about eminent science, scientists in their field. They stand out. Preeminent means he stands about above all of the, pre, the standouts. And sometimes we find that he is not preeminent in our, um, in our lives. Uh, perhaps we may find that he is not preeminent in our assembly. That other things, that programs, that uh, fighting for resources, that all of these things have made him take second or third or, or back seat. And we, we find to our surprise that he is not. What about our unsaved friends? When that day comes, when all will recognize with perfect knowledge, Jesus Christ is preeminent. Will it come as a surprise to them? Will they say, man, I, talked with, I worked with this guy for 20 years. He mentioned that he was a Christian, that, that, that Jesus Christ was important to him. So I'm studying his Bible, blah, blah, blah. I never really got the idea from the way he talked, from the way he lived, that Christ was preeminent. This is coming as a shock to me to see Christ so glorified and preeminent. Or will they say, he warned me. I knew from the way he talked and the way he lived and the, the fear that was in his life, the godly fear, that he serves someone so big and so great and so powerful and I should have been ready. I should have known that this day was coming, that Christ would be recognized as preeminent over everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ <clears throat> willing to come to a corrupt, evil, material universe to be incarnated um, for the fullness of you to dwell in him, to dwell in a, a human body and through that body to die and bleed and re reconcile everything to you. <clears throat> we pray that as we live, as we deal with each other, as we deal with unbelievers, as we 
live as examples to our children, whether we like it or not, um, that we would, through our priorities, through our actions, through the way we speak, through our reverence, show that we understand you to be preeminent. We understand you to be sovereign. We understand you to have first place. That we are not free, that we are not uh, individualistic, um, that we serve Jesus Christ as our master, as the one who has first place in our lives. We pray that that would be the case if we uh, realize that that is not in any area of our lives. We pray that we would be honest and uh, correct that and that we would spend time focused on the person of your son so that we would truly understand who he is before that day comes when all will recognize him as who he is. It's in his name we pray, amen.